1 Kings 15. Well, by this chapter, we are now well into the beginning of the divided kingdom period of Israel's history. Israel's first king, Jeroboam, is dead, and Judah's first king, Rehoboam, is also dead. And so as we journey beyond the beginning of these two kingdoms, we're going to see that, though, that one thing has never changed, and that's the Lord. God's character remains the same. And this is such an important truth that the writer wants to convey to his readers. He wants his fellow exiles to see that God did not change and therefore never will change. And that the same God who kept his promises to both nations back then will keep his promises to them. Because that's the whole theme of this book. It's covenants and character. God's character is faithful, righteous, just, never changes. And covenants, he keeps his covenants, he keeps his promises. So chapter 15, we begin in verse 1 with King Abijam. We're going to look at four kings tonight. In fact, this chapter sums up the lives of four kings, two from the north and two from the south. There are more details about their reigns in Second Chronicles. So if you're thinking, I think there's more to this. I remember more to the story of the, these kings or some, one of these kings. You're probably correct because Second Chronicles gives more information. First Kings truly just kind of sums up. So we start with King Abijam in the south. Now, in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, reigned. So, when in the 18th year of Jeroboam, in the north's reign, it says, Abijam reigned over Judah. Um, the writer is going to give these types of markers, time markers to us all throughout First and Second Kings, because he doesn't want to confuse us as we bounce between the two kingdoms. That can be a little bit confusing if you're new to the Bible, and you're like, wait a second, why is there a king here and a king here at the same time? And it's because the nation divided at a certain point after Solomon died. So he's going to give us these time markers so we can not be confused when we're bouncing back and forth. So the 18th year of Jeroboam's reign would be toward the very end of his reign. Um, And what's fascinating to me is that both Jeroboam and Rehoboam named their oldest sons the same thing, Abijam. In fact, if you look at Jeroboam and Rehoboam's life, there are many parallels between these two families, which kind of reveals the competition between them. The sad part is that God promised to bless both of them if they stopped worrying about each other and just followed Him. And Before we even get started tonight, that does lay out that there are two ways you can spend your life. I mean, one path that you can take is you can focus on the things you don't have, and then another path you can take is to focus on the things that God wants you to do. Those are two very different paths. They have radically different destinations. So choose which one you want to go down. Well, it tells us in verse 2 how long he reigned. It says, three years did he reign in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Maacah, the daughter of Absalom. Three years, given that his father became king at the age of 41 and died at the age of 58, it is likely Abijam took the throne in his late 30s, maybe early 40s. Uh, That means he died at an early age, and the Bible doesn't tell us why. Uh, It does tell us, we'll see in a second, that he was an evil king, but it doesn't tell us like if God killed him or he just died of natural causes early, but his reign was very short. It's going to mention his mother's name here because The queen mother position was a very important position in the kingdom of Judah. Not so much in the northern kingdom, but in the southern kingdom, it was a very important role. This daughter of Absalom was named after Absalom's mother, Maacah. She was the daughter of a pagan king that David married in a treaty with him. This isn't important now, but it will become important later in the chapter, who she is and what she does. Verse 3, here's God's evaluation. 
And he walked in all the sins of his father, which he had done before him, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. His heart was not perfect. It was not fully devoted to the Lord. And it mentions two particular sins that that he partook in. It just says sins here, but as we read through the Scriptures, we see two things. Uh, 2 Chronicles 13.21 tells us that he married 14 wives. Now, his father Rehoboam had 18 wives and 60 concubines. It doesn't matter how many, they're both in direct violation of Deuteronomy 17.17, 17, where God forbade kings from taking multiple wives. So, that's the first sin that he followed like his father. The second sin, we'll see in verse 12, it mentions that his son Asa had to remove all the idols that his fathers had made. So these refer to the worship centers that Abijam's father, Rehoboam, tolerated. He left them in place. They were there when Asa took the throne, which means that Abijam tolerated them too. So he did not remain loyal to the Lord like David his father. David, for all of his horrible failures, never had a divided heart as it concerned idols. He only worshiped the Lord. Unfortunately, Solomon, his son, Rehoboam, his grandson, and Abijam, his great-grandson, did not follow in his footsteps in that area. And yet, God still keeps His promises. Look at verse 4 and 5. Nevertheless, for David's sake did the Lord his God give him a lamp in Jerusalem, the word lamp is, it means the reigning presence of an heir. So God kept the dynasty going for David's sake to set up his son after him and to establish Jerusalem and explains why, because David did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord and turned not aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, save only in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. So God acknowledges David's failures here, but he mentions as it particularly concerns his loyalty to the Lord, David never turned to the right or the left. David remained faithful to the Lord as it concerned his worship, his devotion to the Lord. Now, I keep quoting 2 Samuel chapter 7 whenever we see verses like this in Kings, and I'm going to do it again because the writer keeps referencing it. But in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when David said, you know, told the prophet, I want to build a temple for the Lord, and the prophet said, go for it, and then as he's leaving the palace, He said, you need to turn around and tell David that you were wrong because you should have consulted me first before giving your answer. He can't build a temple, but tell him what I'll do for him is I'll build him a house. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, it says, And when your days, David, be fulfilled, and you shall sleep with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, which shall proceed out of your bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever." I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. So, like I said earlier, I know I keep coming back to this promise from God to David, but the writer keeps bringing it up. He keeps bringing it up, which means it's important. Like, if you ever wonder, sometimes I hope you hear people say this, they'll say, Pastor Roll, why does, why does the Bible keep mentioning this over and over and over again? I said, because we don't get it. Like, anytime you see something repeated, then you're probably going to find this is an area of ignorance in the church, or it's an area that the church is struggling to, to live out. God knows us better than we know us. One of my most interesting 
passage in Scripture is favorite, but it's not a happy moment, is when Peter professes that he'll never deny the Lord. He'll never bail on the Lord. And the Lord says to him, he goes, you know, all of you are going to forsake me, abandon me tonight. And he goes, no, I won't. All these jokers will, but I won't. And the Lord has to tell him, he said, Peter, I, I know you're sincere, but the problem is you think you know you better than I know you. And you don't. I know you better than you know you. And so, Peter, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. So when God keeps bringing something up, it means it's important. I think the writer's trying to convey to us that there were plenty of opportunities for God to go, you know what? I'm out of here. <laughs> like, I'm done. But God never did. Even when he judged you and he sent his people into captivity, he never broke his promise. He still gave them a promise in captivity that after 70 years they would come back, and he still gave a promise that Messiah was coming, that David's line would indeed reign forever. Now, why is this important? Well, Numbers 23, 19 lays out a very important part of God's nature, his immutability. That usually doesn't come up in a song, like that's not a very lyrical line. I think I just probably challenged Nathan, he's probably going to write a song now that has the word immutability in it. But the concept of God's immutability is the idea that He does not change. In Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, the Lord explains to Moses. He says, or I'm sorry, this is uh, Balaam prophesying about God. And he says, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and shall he not do it? Or has he spoken, and shall he not make it good? That's an important truth about our God's character. He doesn't change. He doesn't lie. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't say something, then not fulfill it. When he speaks, he makes good on it. James chapter 1, verse 17, it communicates something very similar. It talks about the Lord. There's no shadow of turning with Him. It says, every good and perfect gift is from above. Good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is, King James says, no variableness, neither shadow of turning. No variation is what that means. Like there's not multiple variations of God. You know, it's not like, well, here's the God of the 1200s and the God of the 1600s, and now, you know, it's the God of the 21st century. There is no variation with God, neither is there a shadow of turning. The shadow of turning is the idea that the sun goes up and then it goes down, it goes away. God isn't like the sun that appears and then goes away. He is light at all times. His character never changes, even when ours does. In fact, Paul brings this up in that kind of great doxology when he says, if we deny Him, it says, if we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. It's who He is. He's always faithful. So, even though He had plenty of opportunities to bail on His people and His promise to David, God never did. The writer wants His fellow exiles to understand that. He wants us to understand that. Well, verses 6 through 8 detail this guy's reign, and it's not very long. And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. Now the rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam. And Abijam slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David, and Asa his son reigned in his stead. So there's only two things we learn about this guy other than the fact that he, his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord. There was war in his father's day, and there was war in his day. 
Nice way to be remembered, huh? What the writer's communicating here is that Abijam was raised in a time of constant hostility, the leadership example of his father shaping him. Dads, if I could have your ear for a moment tonight, you will teach your kids what is the most important thing to pursue by what you pursue. You will teach your kids what is the most important thing to pursue by what you pursue. And so I ask you, what are you telling them is most important to pursue? Well, Rehoboam's example is one of constant frustration over what was lost. It was a slavish desire fueled him to get it back. That's what his life was all about. So is it any wonder that his son followed in his footsteps? Now, Second Chronicles tells us that Abijam was more successful than his father in his battles against Jeroboam, he even took some land back from the northern kingdom. But did any of it matter in the end? I mean, he died within three years and Jeroboam's still alive. You know, I'm sure he probably thought to himself, this joker's going to die before me and I'm going to get this land back. The Bible tells us that not even our, our, own, our own hair is our own to decide. Can I, can I change? I mean, I know you can change the color of your hair now, ladies, but can I change who I am? And the answer is no. I'm very small. Life is but a vapor. And so, after just three years, Abijam's only legacy is he fought with Jeroboam. There is a sense, literally, where he added nothing to his nation during his time as their leader because everything was the same as when his dad was around. In other words, if he'd never lived or never reigned, nothing would be different. I do not want that to be my legacy. I mean, not unless everything that my father did was perfect. I don't want that to be my legacy. I want my life to count for something eternal, don't you? Well, the next king we're going to look at, king number two, is King Asa of Judah. Verse 9, and in the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, reigned Asa over Judah. In 41 years he reigned in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Maacah, the daughter of Absalom. That word mother there actually means grandmother. But Asa, and Asa did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord, as did David his father. So right at the very final year of Jeroboam's reign is when Asa takes the throne. It mentioned that he reigned for 41 years. The only two king, uh, kings in Judah that reigned longer than him were Uzziah and Manasseh. The phrase here, his mother's name, the problem is, is that the word for mother in the Hebrew is the same word for grandmother and for caregiver. So Hebrew is a little bit less precise than Greek. And so you have to look at the context. Clearly, they do not have the same mother, him and his father. So uh, this is a reference to her being the grandmother at this point in time. And God's evaluation of him is he did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord, as did David, his father. Uh, the phrase right in the eyes, it means that which conforms to God's standard. He lived a life that conformed to God's standard, that which was proper. This is not saying that Asa never sinned or never failed as a king. It's not saying that his love for God kept growing throughout his life. It's simply saying that he was loyal to God like David was, that he never served idols. Now, Asa was the very first good king that Judah had. Only eight of Judah's 19 kings were good. None of Israel, the northern kingdom's 19 kings, were good. Zero for 19. That gets you fired. 
We see evidence, though, of Asa's devotion to God early in his reign, and verse 12 explains what he did right. It says, and he took away the Sodomites out of the land. He removed all the idols that his fathers had made. And also Maacah, his mother, even her he removed from being queen because she had made an idol in a grove. And Asa destroyed her idol and burnt it by the brook Kidron. So what did he do right? Well, number one, he removed the things that his father had tolerated. It says, and he took away or he banished, exiled the Sodomites out of the land. Now we addressed who those, that group of individuals was in chapter 14, so I'm not going to go into great detail again. These were simply uh, male ritual prostitutes in the various worship sites that were around Israel. Um, and it says he exiled them here. Now, it, it, that's definitely what it means. He did not execute them. Even though sexuality of this kind, uh, sexual sin of this kind, was a capital crime, this word to take away or banish is never used of execution. But to be honest, exile to an Israeli was just as bad because every Israelite had a place in the promised land because, not because the king gave you land, but because God gave each family an inheritance of land in that region of the promised land. So to be banished from the land was to be stripped of who you were. It was like saying you're not a part of the family of God anymore. And when a person is living in unrepentant sin, you and I can't give them assurance of their salvation. I can't look at somebody when they're living in unrepentant sin. I didn't say they're struggling with sin. We all have struggles. We all have conflicts with sin. But like we talked about this morning, if we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar and His Word isn't in us. If I'm saying what I'm doing is not wrong, it's perfectly fine. When the Bible says it's wrong, that's a problem. I cannot tell that person and go, well, you know, I know you're unrepentant, but praise the Lord, you know, you're going to heaven, you said a prayer, or you went down and raised, or raised your hand at a crusade, or went down and got saved at a, at a church service. I can't give someone an assurance of everything's fine because everything's not fine. And if that person refuses to respond correctly to church discipline, they need to be removed from the church. Now, that's not a step that, that we ever move towards quickly or easily or even with joy. I've only had to do that, I think, three or four times in the course of 26 years of being a pastor, and every time it wasn't easy. It was a no-brainer decision, but it wasn't easy. And we had given that in those individuals long time to try to, you know, to, to repent, to change their behavior, but it got to a place where we could not allow them just to come here and interact with the body of Christ and think everything's fine with God when it's not. This was extreme action for Asa to take, but his loyalty to God demanded it. He also removed all the idols that his father had made. Asa's elders were not going in the right direction. This word removed means to go in a new direction, to, go, to turn aside from the direction that you're currently going. And so while his elders, his fathers, they were not going in the right direction, Asa had the courage to say, we're done doing it that way. I'm putting a stop to this. And this devotion that he had to God extended to dealing with his wicked grandmother. Sounds like a fairy tale. Verse 13, and also Maacah, his grandmother, even her he removed from being queen because she had made an idol in a grove. And so Asa destroyed her idol and burnt it by the brook Kidron. I think I would like to have met young Asa. Like, I mean, he didn't just get rid of it. He's like, we're going to have a, like a, a burning party out by the Brook Kidron where everybody can see. One of the cool parts when you go to Israel is you can notice 
where things are like topographically. Sometimes it's easy, it's hard to picture certain aspects of things that some people say in the Bible because you don't know the topography. But when you go to Israel and you go to Jerusalem, I mean, the Brook Kidron, like if you, you're in the city and you're looking out, like the Brook Kidron's right there if you're on that side of the city. Everybody's going to see this. It's not like just some dude down there lighting fire to something, a little pyro in the brook or something. This is, this is a very public thing that he does. Now, I mentioned earlier that the office of queen mother was an important one. That office of queen mother was given to the oldest mother in the kingly line. And they had the highest status of all the females in the royal household, which gave them a ton of influence in society. These influential women will be mentioned all throughout First and Second Kings. In fact, one of them later almost destroyed the line of the Messiah because she made herself queen. That's a whole interesting story we'll get to eventually. But Maacah here, her grandmother, whose name she shared, was Syrian, a nation of many idols. And when we read about David, he did seem to tolerate private idol worship from his wives. There's that section of Scripture where it mentions that Michael, his wife, was hiding, you know, the fact that David had left the building. His, you know, Saul wanted to kill him. And it says, it mentioned that she took, she took the family idol and put it in the, put it in the, the bed and like it was his head, and, you know, and covered him up and pretended he was sick. And, and it, the book, the Bible just casually mentions it, and you're just kind of reading there, and you're like, why is there a family idol here? You know, what's going on here? Um, Michael was not a spiritual woman. She was not someone who loved the Lord. Um, And so David seemed to tolerate if his wives wanted to do this privately. So I wouldn't be surprised if this wife maintained some of those idol influences when she married David. We know later on that Solomon encouraged his wives to worship idols by building temples to all the gods they worshiped. So it appears that Maacah at some point here returned to her grandmother's worship of the goddess Asherah. The word grove there, that's what that refers to, uh, is a Asherah pole. But it's not just that she did that. It mentions she also made an idol and she put it right next to this Asherah pole that they would use to worship the goddess Asherah. Now, the word here for idol is the King James translators being polite uh, to not offend us. The word means a phallic symbol. Uh, That is a stone or wood that's been carved into the shape of male genitalia. You used to be able to see examples of these things in the line at the Everest ride at Animal Kingdom. Uh, I don't know if they're still there, Uh, but these are common idols or symbol, idolic, idolic, I don't think that's the word, idolic, I don't even know how you'd say that. They are the idol-type symbols that are used in other religions quite frequently and in many of the Canaanite religions. While the Asherah pole became a stum- common stumbling block for idolatry in Israel over the years, the phallic symbols were extremely taboo in Israel. Uh, most Israelites were disgusted by that practice. So, you know, for her to put this side by side shows just how, shows how bad things had gotten in this time, that she felt bold enough to put this thing out there that everybody could see. So it took great courage for Asa to depose uh, this wicked, influential woman, but he did so. And then he publicly destroyed both of her idolatrous symbols. He burnt them in the brook Kidron, and he did it in front of everybody. Now, 
He did have some shortcomings, but his heart was in the right place. Verse 14, but the high places were not removed. Nevertheless, Asa's heart was perfect with the Lord all his days. And he brought in the things which his father had dedicated and the things which himself had dedicated into the house of the Lord, silver and gold and vessels. Now, the high places here are not idol worship centers. These are worship centers to the Lord that are not the temple. Now, that was forbidden by God but at least they were dedicated to the Lord. Christians sometimes use the phrase, well, sin is sin. And I get what they're saying, but the problem is it's a very simple phrase for a complex topic. It is a very simple phrase for a complex topic. When we say that that's an accurate statement, it's accurate because all sin is the same in the sense that every human being is lost, whether they've committed genocide or they've lied about their homework. Either way, you're lost. You're a sinner in need of a Savior. Either way, whichever category you fall into, you're not, you don't need to be less saved if you're the one who lied about your homework. So sin is sin in that sense. But it is not true in the sense that God deals with every sin the same. That is not true. And that's not a biblical idea. So sometimes people say that when we're trying to talk about how God deals with sin, and that's not a true statement. God does deal with different sins differently. He doesn't say about every kind of sin that it would be better to have a millstone tied around your neck and throw yourself into the sea. But He does speak about one sin that way. There is a phrase in the Bible that describes certain sins as sins unto death. That exists because there are some things that bring more serious consequences. And so what we find in the Bible are Many people like Asa, to whom God gives a good evaluation, even though they had clear flaws. He looks at them and he says, well, you know, he loved the Lord. You say, well, how can he love the Lord? He did this. Yes, but that's not the same thing as worshiping idols. Now, that's not an excuse to have bad doctrine, (laughs) but it is comforting to know that God evaluates the loyalty of my heart rather than the shortcomings I possess because of the influences around me. I'm a huge student of history, and in particular, church history. And I remember when I took my first church history class, I came out of the class depressed every week. And I remember Bev asked me one week, she's like, why are you always down when you come out of church history class? I said, because none of these people were saved. So like, they all have flaws. They all had doctrinal shortcomings, or they all had character flaws. And I remember I was in class one day, and I was all frustrated because one of the people I was really interested in learning about were learning also about his flaws. And as I was thinking about this and saying, you know, you know, all these, none of these guys walked with you, Lord. None of these guys were perfect before you. They were fully dedicated to you or they didn't have issues or whatever. And he's like, huh. You know, a little still small voice said, huh, kind of like you. I get it. My, my end of the year lesson from church history was, is praise the Lord for his grace. That's what the lesson was. Praise the Lord for his grace. I often wonder how many times I will say, like, oh, I got that wrong when I get to heaven. Like, I'm pretty sure on the essentials I'm good. But I do wonder when I get home to be with the Lord, how many times I'll say, got that one wrong. I hope it's not too much. I do know this, though. Like Peter, after Jesus rose from the dead, Peter, who still had so many flaws at that point in his life, when Jesus asked him if he was loyal, he said, Peter, are you my friend? He at first asked him, he said, Peter, do you, are you unconditionally devoted to me? Do you agape me? And Peter responded and said, Lord, you know I'm your friend. 
I, you know I phileo you. Different word for love. She said, Peter, do you love me more than these? Fish, the disciples, who knows what exactly he was talking about, but like, am I your top priority? Peter's like, Lord, you know I'm your friend. And the Lord said to me, said, Peter, are you my friend? And you could hear the brokenness in Peter's voice. You know, he's like, you wonder if what was going through Peter's mind is, I said I'd never abandon you. I wouldn't bail on you like all these guys. And that's why I think when Jesus said, you love me more than these, he's talking about the disciples. I mean, last time we met, what you told me was, is you, you'd never abandon me in all these woods, so you love me more than everybody else. Is that still your profession, Peter? And Peter's like, nope. But then the Lord brings it down to his level, and he goes, well, Peter, are you my friend? And Peter's so heartbroken in his response. He's like, Lord, you know all things. You know me better than I know me, but Lord, you know I'm your friend. And so I know I can say, Lord, you know all things. You know I am your friend. I want to get rid of anything that displeases the Lord in my life. I want to be fully devoted to Him. And I think that's what matters most to the Lord. So you can look at the life of like a John Wesley and see that he had a failed marriage, but still believe he loved the Lord. You can look at a guy like Luther who had some doctrinal flaws and he had some flaws in his views about Jewish people. You know when you read about his love for the Lord, you read about his own heart toward the Lord, that he loved the Lord. Ace is kind of like that. God says about him he was perfect with the Lord all his days. He was fully devoted even though he had shortcomings. God says this about Asa even though the Bible lists a few failures he had later in his life. And so this brings me great hope (laughs) that even though I have shortcomings and maybe even shortcomings I'm not aware of, that I can still have a heart that's fully devoted to Him as I'm growing in the Lord. Now, I say that, but that should never comfort you in your sin. (laughs) That's not why I say that. Like, if you're aware of sin in your life, then you need to repent. You know, you need to change. But if not, then just keep walking with Him and ask the Lord to reveal any blind spots that you might have. When I think of where I am now at the age of 48, Where I was at the age of 18, there's a lot of things that I'm aware of now in my character that were flaws that I didn't even know were problems when I was 18. So, I mean, if we extrapolate that out, it's very likely that if the Lord tarries when I'm 78, there'll be things in my life now that are blind spots that I'll realize later on. That's okay as long as we're seeking the Lord and asking Him to deal with those things. You know, if if you're aware of it, you know, then repent. (laughs) Now, it mentions in verse 15 that he brought in all the things that his father had dedicated and the things he had dedicated into the house of the Lord. Again, this will become later, important later in the chapter. These refer to the spoils of war from victories God gave to him and to his father. Those victories are covered in 2 Chronicles, not here. But he brought them into the house of the Lord. He, He dedicated them to God's use for whatever would be necessary. Verse 16 we are going to see an area where he did something wrong that the writer's going to list. And mentioned in verse 16, first off, what he did wrong, it says, there was war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, all their days. Asa grew up in the same exact environment his father had. Your brothers in the north are your enemy. Well, that was one of Asa's flaws. He adopted that viewpoint. And as a parent, I know that my children's failures are their own choices, but I don't want to make it any harder for them to obey God. 
Like, I know they have their own choices to make, and that's not my fault, but I don't want to make it hard for them to obey God. I don't want to share my blind spots with them. Realize, if you're a parent, the influence that you're having. Well, who's Baasha? This is a new guy, and we haven't met him before. He's king of Israel already. I thought Jeroboam was king. Well, yes, he died in chapter 14, and his son Nadab took his place. We'll get to him at the end of the chapter, but he's the new dynasty in the northern kingdom. Suffice it to say that when he became king, relationships between the two kingdoms didn't improve. And one particular incursion by Baasha in the north put Asa in a bad spot, verse 17. And Baasha, king of Israel, went up against Judah, and he built Ramah, that he might not suffer any to go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. He didn't just build a city. The word here, built, Ramah was already a city. The word built here means he fortified it. So he captured this city in Benjamin, Ramah, and then he fortified it, turned it into a place that would govern who could go past it, uh, who could go in and who could go out of Judah. Now, Ramah is only about five miles north of Jerusalem, which is Asa's capital. So you've got your enemy right on your doorstep, keeping anyone from going out or anyone from coming in. Now, Asa's father, Abijam, we didn't list it here, but Second Chronicles tells us that he took quite a bit of land from Jeroboam. But Baasha now has pushed Judah back out and was now actually taking part of the tribal territory that belonged to Benjamin. Now, Second Chronicles 13 tells us why Baasha did this. He did this because Israelis from three other tribes in the north were defecting to Judah because of Asa's religious reforms. So when Asa was turning back to the Lord, and many in Judah were coming back to the Lord, he invited people from the north to come back to the Lord. And from three tribes in particular, a large portion of people defected and moved south. And remember, isn't that what Jeroboam's greatest fear was? That's what caused him to build those golden calves in the first place, those golden bulls in Bethel and in Dan. He didn't want anyone going down to Jerusalem to worship because he believed if they'd go down to Jerusalem to worship, they would give their loyalty back to the line of David. Well, this is what you call a self-fulfilling prophecy. When you're so terrified of something, you do everything you can to keep it from happening that you actually create the circumstances that make it happen. He had forsaken the Lord. And as a result, the faithful people in the north said, we want to worship the Lord. And so when Asa began to bring religious reforms, returned to the Lord, they defected to the south. So this is why he built it. And surely Asa probably wanted people to still be able to come down and worship the Lord. But an enemy fortified city this close to Jerusalem also created a military crisis and a potential economic crisis for Asa. But instead of turning to the Lord for help, Asa turned to the king of Syria, which is why it's listed as a negative here. Verse 18, then Asa took all the silver and the gold that was left in the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house, and he delivered them into the hand of his servants. And King Asa sent them to Ben-Hadad, the son of Tabrimon, the son of Hezion, king of Syria, that dwelt at Damascus, saying, there is a league between me and you and between my father and your father. Behold, I have sent unto you a present of silver and gold. Come and break your league with Baasha, king of Israel, that he may depart from me. So, remember I mentioned earlier in verse 15 that he brought in all of these spoils of war, and instead of keeping them for himself, he dedicated it to the Lord? 
Well, that money was being spent to support the priests and the Levites. It was there to take care of them, and the excess would have been really nice in case of a famine or something else where Israel would still be able to continue worshiping the Lord and seeking the Lord in those difficult times. Well, he decides to take that which he gave to God back and then to use it as a bribe. Now, he tells in verse 19, the message to the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, is, well, you know, we had a league. Now, when we last learned about the Syrians, they were vassals to David, but they rebelled under Solomon and eventually won their independence when Israel divided. So Asa's father had made a new deal with the king of Syria, which extended into Asa's reign because of his father's early death. But when Baasha became the new king of, Syria, of Israel, he also made a treaty with the king of Syria. So now we've got a problem. I can't ask you to keep your part of the deal without you breaking your deal with Baasha. So he sends a bribe to get Ben-Hadad, king of Assyria, to break his treaty with Israel. And for all purposes, the plan worked. Verse 20, so Ben-Hadad hearkened unto King Asa and sent the captains of the hosts which he had against the cities of Israel and smote Ijon and Dan and Abelbeth Meacah and all Kinneroth with all the land of Naphtali. And it came to pass when Baasha heard about it that he left off building of Ramah and he dwelt in Terzah. Now, three of these cities that are mentioned here are in the far north of Israel's border. Kinneroth is a, was a city on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, and the land of Nashtali is the region west and north of the Sea of Galilee. So taking these cities, attacking these cities was a huge wedge into Israel's northern border and would leave the entire nation exposed to Syrian invasion if Baasha didn't deal with it. So he left off, he stopped, he ceased the fortifications of Ram. He didn't finish the building of the fortifications, and he dwelt in Terza, his capital. In other words, he, he had to focus on his northeastern borders, and so that meant his campaign into Judah was over. And verse 22 tells us that Asa stepped right into the vacuum. Verse 22, then King Asa made a proclamation throughout all Judah, none was exempted, and they took away the stones of Ramah and the timber thereof, with which... Baasha had built it, and then King Asa built with those materials Geba of Benjamin and Mizpah, two new cities. So basically, when the Israelites abandoned this fortress they were building, he conscripted forced labor, just like Solomon used for his building projects. No one was exempted. And he had them grab all the materials, basically whatever they built, knock it down, and use the materials to build two other smaller fortresses in the region. Baasha had been constructing Ramah right along the road that led to Jerusalem. That's why it would be an economic problem. No traders could come in without king of Israel's permission. That would have been a big problem economically for the kingdom of Judah. So they tore that down, and then the two fortresses would now flank the road. Geba would guard the eastern side, and Mizpah would guard the western side, and this would ensure that trade got through and the Israeli army stayed out. Success, right? Well, we will wait until we get to Second Chronicles to get a detailed answer of how God viewed Asa's actions. But suffice it to say that Asa leaned on his own understanding and God sent a prophet to correct him. Stealing from the Lord or making alliances with unbelievers in order to gain political power is never a good idea, no matter how practically sound the plan seems on paper. Not even if it works. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 is what God calls you and me to do. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. 
but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths or literally make your paths straight. You'll be right on the path he wants you to be on. Well, there's much more to Asa's life, but we don't really get that. We just get a summary here. And so verse 23 and 24, it says, the rest of all the acts of Asa and all his might, referring to his political might, Asa did end his life politically on a high note, but God was not pleased. So it mentions here that all of that, all his might and all that he did and all the cities which he built, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? But then it gives this little caveat, nevertheless, in the time of his old age, he was diseased in his feet. Now, the writer here does not just have a foot fetish. He is writing about this disease because the Chronicles mention this is important. Why is it important? Well, Asa was a true believer who did a lot of good. But 2 Chronicles 16.10 tells us that he imprisoned the prophet God sent to correct him about this whole mess with King Baasha. And instead of listening to it, he imprisoned him and he began to oppress God's people in his rage over it. And so, the writer of Chronicles implies that when this disease hit him, God might have healed him. But he he had become so self-sufficient, leaning on his own understanding, that he never even sought the Lord about it. And so, the writer here doesn't give us all the details of Asa's life, but he gives this kind of glaring asterisk next to his name, even though he's in a list of the good kings. So, I don't want an asterisk next to my name. (laughs) Oh, well, he was a Christian, and he did a lot of good things, but this little asterisk here, I don't want that to be part of my testimony. Now, the writer's primary purpose is to show that God kept his word to David, and so, you know, the idea here is when he explains that he was diseased in his feet, he's just saying that God disciplined Asa when he got off track. He didn't depose him, but he did discipline him. And that's, again, a fulfillment of God's promises. God keeps his promises. Verse 24, Asa slept with his fathers. He was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father. And Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his stead. Jumping Jehoshaphat. We'll read about him, God willing, in a few weeks. Verse 25, now we swap back to the northern kingdom, and we're actually going to go back in time a bit in verse 25. Verse 25, the third king now is Nadab. It says, And Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, began to reign over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah, and he reigned over Israel for two years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father, and in his sin wherewith he made Israel to sin. Remember, Jeroboam's oldest son died of an illness, so this would be Jeroboam's second oldest son. And it picks up the story where 1 Kings 14.20 left off and named him as the next king. It mentions that he had a very short reign. He only reigned two years. He did not die naturally. We'll see why he died or how he died in just a few verses. But God's evaluation of him is that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, God had told us already through the prophet Abijah that all of Jeroboam's kids were evil except the one that died of the illness. So we already knew this guy was a bad dude, and now we get confirmation that he reigned as a bad king. And it explains why he was bad. He walked in the way of his father, and in his sin wherewith he made Israel to sin. So two things here that are evil about him is, one, he was just like his dad, which means he was proud, self-willed, and compromised. Proud, self-willed, and compromised. And then secondly, he maintained the golden bull worship system that his father had set up. 
Now, if he would have repented and put a stop to everything his father had done, I believe with all my heart that God would have been merciful. But he did not. And so, as God prophesied, he would die and not a natural death. Verse 27 explains what happened to him. And Baasha, the king of Ahijah, of the house of Issachar, conspired against him. And Baasha smote him at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines, for Nadab and all Israel laid siege to Gibbethon. Even in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, did Baasha slay him, and he reigned in his place. Now, the Bible does not explain to us who Baasha is in Israeli society. 1 Kings 16.2 seems to imply that he wasn't an influential person until he led this rebellion. That's what that word conspiracy means, conspired against him. It means a planned, organized rebellion. I don't know how he became in charge of this. The rabbis said that he was a, a general in the army, but like I said, the Bible seems to imply he was not an influential person until he did this. So I don't know how he got close enough, but it tells us why the king was exposed. It mentioned that he smote him at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines, while he was laying siege to it. So Gibbethon was a Levitical city located in the western plains by the Mediterranean Sea. It was, all Levitical cities were important. That the Philistines had captured one of Israel's Levitical cities shows that things were not going well for Nadab right now. He'd already lost land to Asa, and now he's losing land to the Philistines as well. So He figured he'd take on the easier foe. The Philistines were not very powerful at this time. And he decides we're going to lay siege to Gibbethon and take it back. But while he's trying to liberate the city, Baasha's conspiracy took advantage of the exposure, killed him, and then Baasha took his throne. But Baasha did not stop there. Just as God prophesied, he wiped out all of Jeroboam's line. Verse 29, And it came to pass that when he reigned, that he smote all the house of Jeroboam. He did not leave to Jeroboam any that breathed until he had destroyed him, according to the saying of the Lord, which he spake by his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. Why did God do that? Because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned, and which he made Israel to sin, by his provocation, or if he provoked the Lord to anger to Israel. Now, the rest of the acts of Nadab and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? God's faithfulness extends to his judgments. God did what he said he would do, exactly what he said he would do. And God explains why he provoked me. God wanted to bless Jeroboam, wanted to bless his family. God promised he would bless Jeroboam, that he would make Jeroboam's line a dynasty in the northern kingdom if he just simply followed the Lord, if he just remained loyal to the Lord. But Jeroboam thumbed his nose at the Lord, and that promise and he got a much worse promise instead. And when the last of Jeroboam's line was killed, God's promise was kept. You know, we usually don't think of God's faithfulness in terms of his judgment, but the Bible does. That's why it's so dangerous to adopt the attitude of thinking, well, God is a forgiving God. He'll just pardon my sin and let me go to heaven. That's bad logic. I would not think a judge was a good judge if they kept letting a repeat offender go free to hurt more people. Now, I realize that ideology is changing in our culture, but this is the truth. We should not think a judge is a good judge when they keep letting a repeat offender go free to do more harm. And so God is a good judge, and He will uphold His law, and He will keep His promises. The fourth king is mentioned very briefly here, verse 32. And there was war, common theme, 
All these guys had this flaw. There was war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, all their days. And the third year of Asa, king of Judah, began Baasha, the son of Ahijah, to reign over all Israel in Terzah. He reigned for 24 years. That's a long time to be at war. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam, and in his sin wherewith he made Israel to sin. So we learn here that even though Baasha took out an ungodly man, he was not a godly man. He was just a power-hungry man. And because he was just a power-hungry man, he didn't stop fighting with Judah. He was he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So even though it's a different person on the throne, it's the same kind of king. He continued Jeroboam's wicked ideology that God's people shouldn't be encouraged to go to Judah to worship, and that he needed to maintain this gold, the golden bull system, which he called the true worship of Jehovah. And so as a result, he too will experience the judgment of God's faithfulness to his promises. We'll get to that later in 1 Kings, though. It is important, as we close out this chapter, to understand that God is faithful. But it's also important to think of what that means in its totality. It's important to remember that when I sing of His promises, that that also includes His promises of judgment and discipline. That when I sing of His coming in faithfulness to His promise to rescue me, that that is not separate from His faithfulness to punish the wicked and set up His kingdom. They are the same thing. God's promises are an awesome thing, but they should also motivate me to think of more than just myself. You see, the writer is writing to a group of exiles in Babylon who had adopted a woe is me, God doesn't love me, God isn't faithful attitude. And the writer's trying to get their attention. He's saying, listen, guys, this is more than just about you. Yes, you don't like where you are, but God is not done. God kept His promises every time to His people. So yes, there's hope for you if you'll turn back to Him, but there's also hope for everyone else around you. So spread the word. Tell others to come back to Him, because there's another promise that if we don't, we will remain under His hand of discipline. And so there are people around you and me every day that are under God's judgment or under God's discipline And so that promise that he's going to deal with them someday needs to grab my attention as much as the ones that bring the promises that bring blessing to me. When we read about these things, we need to just look at them as, oh, that's going to happen, but oh, that's going to happen. God keeps his word. There's not going to be any escaping that. And so with Paul, Paul says, therefore, knowing the the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Yes, he's faithful. He's good, he's kind, but he's also just, and he's holy. All of those things need to be kept in mind when we consider God's faithfulness. Let's all stand. Lord, we read Psalms like Psalm 75 and kind of heavy. You know, they talk about your faithfulness to judge the wicked. But Lord, the songwriter wrote that song and sung of it because we, we cannot forget that. So Lord, tonight as we read about your faithfulness to all these kings, one good, three bad, you're faithful to all of them, Lord. It, it is a sober reminder that we need to remember that truth. So, Lord, teach us to number our days. Teach us to redeem the time. But, Lord, remind us. Lord, even as we recommit to you tonight to remember that this is more than just me. To remember that there are people around us that are under, under your judgment, under your discipline. Lord, that we would share the good news with them that they don't have to experience that promise, they can experience a much better one.
So Lord, motivate us with your love. Motivate us, Lord, like Paul, with the terror of the Lord, that we might persuade men. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.